You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. Good to see you. Um, it's great to be here at Rolling Meadows today. It's great to have the rest of you join us all across the campuses. Um, you're going to need a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we're going to do the whole chapter. It's okay. It's only about uh, it's 13 verses. A lot of years ago, I uh, was working at a Christian camp. I was kind of a newish Believer. I mean, I've been around the church for a long time, but not like the evangelical church where people meant it. My, my church was more of a mainline, you go, you tick the box, and then you go home. Um, so when I got to be part of kind of the, this Christian camp, there were counselors from all these different churches, and we got to know each other pretty well. But I didn't know their church backgrounds or whatever. So when they would invite me, hey, you should come to this particular church this weekend. You'll love it. I was always like, yeah, sure. Be happy to do that. One of the ones that we went to on a Sunday night was a, was a church in, uh, it was a large church in the east side of Seattle. And um, it was more charismatic. Now, that's a word or phrase that I didn't, I didn't know what that meant at the time. What, what it means is that the people uh, oftentimes are more expressive in their worship. They, uh, they tend to be folks who would be more open to uh, some of what we call the sign gifts, meaning uh, the speaking of tongues or um, prophecy or like words of wisdom or words of knowledge or things that they would seek and employ in the gathered, uh, the gathered worship service. But I, I mean, I didn't, didn't know anything about that at the time. And so we went along and I was standing there. Music was great and we were singing and... All of a sudden, my friends started raising their hands, which is a new thing for me because I was not accustomed. I always thought that there was crazy people raise their hands because I was mainline Presbyterian, and Presbyterians will raise their hands, but only in heaven, you know, when Jesus asks, are there any Presbyterians here? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm here. Um, so I came from that kind of background, so it's a little weird for me. Somebody's raising their hands, but then the guy standing next to me started to kind of mumble and speak in some kind of, I don't know if it was a language or if it was just sort of him babbling. I, I just, I never heard anything like it. So we sat down. I mean, he was doing really loud. He was doing it loud enough that I could hear it. But I sat down and uh, while the guy was talking, I leaned over and said, what were you doing? And he said, I was speaking in tongues. And I said, what's that? And he said, you don't know what the, what the gift of tongues is? I said, never heard of it in my life. So then he opened his Bible up to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, and he showed me how this gift is a gift that he believed that the Lord had given him. And of course, that um, created in my mind uh, what we call a cognitive dissonance, meaning like, I don't know what to do with this. So then I started researching it and studying it, and it's been really an interesting subject for me for lots and lots of years as I've... Uh, kind of worked in different churches with different backgrounds and people from all over the kind of spectrum. 
And what I've learned in that time is that there, are a, there is a spectrum, there is a range of belief about this particular thing, the gift of tongues in particular, but in this, what we call the sign gifts in general. And uh, on one side of it is, is the belief that uh, they've ceased. Now, I'm cessationism is the belief that these gifts have ceased, that they were useful in the early church, you know, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then they stopped happening after, you know, the first century, second century, when the church kind of got up and going, and it didn't really need these gifts anymore, because, you know, they had the Bible, or they had other sorts of things, and people who are cessationists say, look at church history, these gifts kind of faded away, so sort of, they think, proves their point. If you ask them, what is but what is happening when somebody's doing this? They'll say, look, series of things. It could just be learned behavior because they have a lot of friends who are doing it. It could be just uh, they're, they're uh, duped. And other people get really, really mean and say, it's probably a demon. So you have cessationism on, on one side. On the other side, you have the, the and I'm just going to write... Pentecostal, it's not all Pentecostal folks. Pentecostal church has a wide variety of lots of different opinions. And now they're a little bit different than they used to be. But historically, the Pentecostal church actually believed that everybody was supposed to speak in the gift of tongues. In fact, it was a sign of your spiritual maturity. Or that the Spirit of God had somehow visited you and has given you what they call the second work of grace. So you came to faith in Christ and then subsequent to that, there's a point in time where you get the gift of tongues and you've been baptized in the Spirit and you can live kind of on a higher plane of Christian existence. So they would say, uh, everyone who doesn't have the gift of tongues is missing out on something that the Spirit wants to give them. So you can see the range. You have to have it on one side and you should never have it today on the other side. And then there's the people in the middle who are like, wow, that, that's, here you have uh, the, hey, I'm cautious about this. I, I, it sounds really weird to me, but they're also open, right? They're cautious, but open. And then next to them, you've got the open people who are cautious, <laughs> who are more, you know, they're like, oh, I actually would find that really, really interesting. And I'm interested a little bit more in it and tell me a bit more. And if it's, if, listen, I want to experience something that the Lord might have for me. This is a wide range. And you could probably, sitting there right now, if you ever heard of this gift, you probably place yourself somewhere on that spectrum. One thing is for sure. Everybody on the spectrum agrees that this issue has created a lot of animosity. I have a friend who I worked with for a little while, and he used to tell me about his, his church background, and he said, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and he said, and they were always trying to get me to speak in tongues, and they had classes for it, you know, just move your mouth, and they would, you know, the Spirit will fill it in, and he said, they used to come, get everyone lined up, and they'd go one by one, and everyone was speaking in tongues, and they'd put their hand on my head, and they'd go, you know, receive the Spirit, and he'd, they'd, he'd be like, yeah, no, nothing, and after a while, you just felt totally ostracized by them. Like, what's wrong with you? Maybe your faith is not right or these sorts of things. And so he abandoned it completely and was probably the most firm cessationist I'd ever met in my life. It's all rubbish. I hate it all. It's created a lot of animosity on all different sides. Imagine if you have the gift or you think you have this particular gift and you meet a cessationist and they're saying, you know, you might be, you might be duped. Eek. A lot of animosity. 
Is speaking in tongues something that legitimately happens today? And if so, is it a sign of spiritual vitality? Look, chapters 12 to 14 in 1 Corinthians are trying to answer some of these questions uh, about what was happening in Corinth in that day, but there are hints along the way regarding whether or not these gifts will continue or they will not. Chapter 14 really gets into the issue of how we should operate with these gifts if they are around today. Chapter 13, in, honestly, though, is the guts of what Paul's trying to argue, and it's not actually that you should try for a particular spiritual gift His argument is, uh, gifts are great, but love is greater. Love is the product of the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of a Christian. So if you want to know whether or not you're a genuine believer, and whether or not you have like real spiritual vitality, and the Holy Spirit is actively at work in you, how do you love So we're going to study this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13, and I've arranged it around three songs, three song titles about love, right? I'm very excited about my song titles. So uh, the first point that we're going to make is all you need is love. Yeah? Uh, What is love? It's the second one. And then uh, I cheated in the last one. Uh, the, the actual song title is My Heart Will Go On from Titanic, but I said Love Will Go On. But you remember that? Like, near, far, wherever, you know, rose. Oh, that, that one? Remember that one? Okay. All right. All you need is love. Nah, nah, nah. And what is love? And then my heart will go on. Okay. First one. Did you see the title of my sermon? What's love got to do with it? Come on. This is amazing, right? Oh, so good. Okay, here we go. Here we go. What it, uh, not what is love. Uh, all you need is love. If I, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is interesting, right? If I speak in the, in the tongues of who? Well, they might be tongues of men and, and even of angels. Now, the, what was going on in the, in the first century with the city of Corinth is that it was a really religious place, and there were several religions that believed that if you were really got into worship of the particular God, um, that God would kind of manifest himself through you, and you would start doing ecstatic, weird things, like dancing in crazy ways, maybe even slashing yourself because you can't control yourself. And one of the things you would do is you would start speaking in the language of the God. You would be able to talk the way that the immaterial gods and goddesses and powers and principalities were able to talk. That, in the... in those religious traditions was like the showiest way that you could demonstrate that you're really close to the God, right? So if you're standing next to me and I'm starting to exhibit the, you know, the God language, you're like, holy smokes, you must really, really, really be connected to this God. In fact, there was a God named Dionysus. Um, He was the God of wine, so a very popular God. And Dionysus, there was a thing called Dionysus mouth. Okay, Dionysus' mouth is basically what happens when you get really, really drunk on wine, and then you start slurring your speech. 
And people were like, oh, the God has totally taken him over, which is probably true because, you know, the wine has totally taken him over. There's a lot of people these days have worshiping the God of Dionysus. They just don't know it. But Dionysus' mouth was a good example of what was going on in those days. And so when these people became Christians, there was an expectation that the God, the Holy Spirit, would somehow meet with them and exhibit himself through them. And that that was the gift of tongues. And it was the most rejoiced over gift because, wow, we th- you might... Yeah, it might be a, 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 a tongue or a language of men, but it's also, dude, probably you're talking like the angels are. And if you saw somebody who was doing this at that time, you would have thought, whoo, now there's a Holy Spirit person. If I have prophetic powers... And I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge. Uh, Prophecy uh, was the ability to know something that was like deep inside a person's psyche or something that was happening in their life that you couldn't possibly know about, but somehow you're, so, you're specific about it and you say it to the person. Sometimes you say it to the person and you know what you're saying, and other times you just say it. You don't know what you're talking but the other person understands it to be, oh my goodness, how does he know that about me? And it, it's, it was, it's given to encourage people, right? You, you might be struggling with a particular you know, grief or something. Someone comes along and says, the Lord says this thing. And you get encouraged by it. A lot of people are freaked out by prophecy and they're like, well, that's just, we have the Bible now. And so prophecy is not really around these days. I always like to point out that uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon actually claimed to, to be a prophet at a couple times, right? He's one of the great Christian Baptist preachers of, uh, of, uh, in the world. And he said this, uh, while preaching in the hall, which was his church, on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd, and I said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays, which was, not, was a no-no in this particular time, okay, in England, to keep your shop open on Sunday. The only reason you keep your shop open on Sundays is because you're greedy. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sunday morning. And he made $9, and there were $4 profit out of of it. And his soul is sold to Satan for $4. In other words, why are you forsaking the gathering of the church and opening your shop and making money? Anyway, a city missionary, when doing his rounds, he met with this man, and seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, says Spurgeon, he asked the question, do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man, I have every reason to know him. I've been to hear him, and under his preaching, by God's grace, I've become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? I went to his church and took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me, and in his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker 
and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that. But he also said that I made $9 the Sunday before, and there, there was $4 profit out of it. And I did make $9 that day, and $4 was the profit. But how should he know that? I couldn't tell. And then it struck me that it was God who had spoken in my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him preach, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. So listen, if you, if you, if you stood next to Charles Haddon Spurgeon at that moment, and, and you, knowing that this, the Lord had used him to do this particular thing in the life of this shoemaker, wouldn't you think, well, the Spirit of God's really with you, man. Clearly, the Spirit is active in your life. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, uh, there are people throughout the history of the church who have exhibited, a, I mean, like an enormous amount of faith. One of my favorite uh, characters in all of Christian history is a guy named George Muller. He was a, a British man who oversaw a bunch of orphanages, but in order to fund the orphanages, he did not go around to different churches and ask for Money. He didn't go and like have a newsletter that he sent out and sort of please give us this money. He decided when he first began that he and his wife, instead of asking for money, would rely completely upon the Lord to provide it. He sold all of his possessions. He gave them to the poor. He had nothing. He and her, and he said, "Lord, we're going to try to do this, but in order to do it, we're going to trust you completely with everything that you might bring in." And the stories that George Muller has about how the Lord provided are amazing. People would travel from great distances. When he would pray, like on a Tuesday morning, Lord, we don't have any money left, and somebody had been traveling for two days to get to him, would knock at the door right after his prayer and say, I, was, I felt the other day while I was praying that I needed to come to you, so I've been traveling for two days to give you this, and they would hand him money. He said, you know, people would freak out and say, man, I could never live that way with that kind of faith that that just believes no matter what happens that the Lord's going to take care of me. He said uh, later in his life, we we learned, uh, sorry, we leaned on the arm of the Lord Jesus. It's now 25 years since we set out in this way and we do not in the least regret the step we we then took. Dude, I, George Miller was standing right here and he was describing for me all the ways that the Lord had used him and how much confidence he had in the Lord. I would be like, dude, clearly the Spirit is with you, <laughs> right? You, you are full of the Spirit. If I, if I give away all... I have this guy named Barnabas in uh, the book of Acts who was a relatively wealthy guy because he owned some special, he owned some property that he wasn't using. But the congregation came together like, like this and he noticed during the meeting that there were people in the room who were brothers and sisters in Christ who did not have what he had. And so because 
he saw that and he felt this overwhelming burden that this is, this is my problem. It's not that they just need to sort themselves out. That because they're my family, I need, to, I need to provide something. So he went out and he sold a piece of land. And then he brought the, the money to the actual meeting and laid it before the apostles. You can imagine being in that meeting when this guy came and laid it before the apostles and said, look, I sold a piece of property and here's the money and like I know there are people in the congregation so I'm going to let you choose how you divide it up between the people so that it can be used by those who are most in need. And then he turns around and he starts walking back to his seat. While he's walking back to his seat, what would you think of him? I know, I know I'd be sitting in the room going, whoo, now that, that is a godly man. The Holy Spirit absolutely is with that guy. If I deliver up my body to be burned and become a martyr, the great martyrs of the Christian church actually is a guy named Polycarp, you should know his name. All right, if you're going to be a Christian and you're going to follow Christ for your life, you're going to end up meeting Polycarp in heaven, and you should know something about the dude, because he's a dude. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna in the second century. In fact, he was a disciple of the apostle John. And he was an old man at this point, and there were a lot of persecution going on around Smyrna at the time. And so they decided they were going to arrest him and give him a chance to recant in front of a whole bunch of people. If we can get Polycarp to recant in front of a whole arena of people, then a lot of other people will recant too, because, you know, he's got a pretty important voice. He's the bishop. John Stott wrote about him. He said it was February 2nd, probably in the year A.D. 156. The venerable bishop who had fled from the city at, his, at the pleading of his congregation, was tracked down to his hiding place. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for two hours. And then, as they traveled into the city, the officer in charge, who had come to bring him under arrest and put him in the arena so he could recant, the officer in charge urged him to recant, saying, what harm could it do, he, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? The way they did that in those days was you just take a little piece of incense and you burned it on a candle. It would go up. And you'd say, you know, Caesar is Lord. That's it. Just take it. Cross your fingers. Caesar is Lord and do it. What could it hurt? Polycarp. What harm could it do? But Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul of the amphitheater who addressed him, respect your years. He's in the amphitheater here, right? Respect your years. Swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, swear and I will release you. Just revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, in front of all these people, for 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul, he, per, he persisted, swear by the genius of Caesar. I, I have wild beasts. If you won't change your mind, I, I'll throw you to them. Call them, Polycarp said. 
Since you make light of the beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. And then angry Jews and Gentiles then gathered wood for the pile and Polycarp. He stood by the stake asking not to be fastened to it. And this is what he prayed. He was going to stand there in the fire. He's like, I'm not going to run away. I'm going to stand here in the fire while you burn me. And this is what he prayed. He said, oh, Lord. Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. The fire was lit, but as the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his suffering, a soldier put an end to his misery with a sword. He pierced him through his heart. So if I'm sitting in that amphitheater, quietly being a Christian and watching this guy not recant, I'm thinking, now that's a sign the Spirit's with him. And yet the whole point of this passage is right here, right? You saw it all along. Uh, if I speak in the tongues, but, but, but have not love. I, I'm a noisy gong or, or a clanging cymbal if I have all Faith, so to remove mountains, but, but have not love. I, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, I deliver up my body, be burned. But have not love. I gain nothing. In other words, it doesn't matter how amazing you live your Christian life and in the sense that, you know, you draw attention and everyone looks at you and says, now that's a faithful act or that's a faithful act. And that person's done the most amazing Christian stuff. You're a pastor and the people come to hear you preach or you're a musician and they pack the stadium out. Or you have the greatest gift of faith that people line up to get wisdom from you on how to trust God. If you don't have love, it's meaningless. Look, these are all phenomenal acts that seem to show closeness to the Holy Spirit. No one's denigrating any of them, but if they're done for personal glory rather than the service of others, they're ultimately empty because love and not giftedness is the mark of spiritual vitality. One of the most courageous things I ever did in my life, actually, I went to a state fair of Washington Puyallup State Fair is what it's called. You walk through the front gate of the State Fair and there are these booths that are lined along the sides and people rent out the booths and different religious traditions do. You know, they're going to try to evangelize. It's a Christian booth at the end. But one of the ones, like third one in, the left-hand side was the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith is a religious tradition that basically is all religions are basically right and the same and everyone's speaking for God and all of, all of their prophets and people are all basically from God and there will be more prophets and people who are from God in the future, right? Not a Christian religion at all. Um, leading people astray to keep them away from believing that Jesus is the one true God. So anyway, my friend and I walked into the thing. We went over to the Baha'i faith booth. We've done some reading a little bit about the Baha'i faith. We went over to the Baha'i faith booth and there was nobody there and we started to have a conversation with them. Right, and so I'm like 17 years old, and I'm full of all sorts of you know knowledge about you know I've 
I've been studying, baby. And so I'm standing there and we're having, a, we're having a good dialogue for a few minutes. And then it, you know how these dialogues go. They start to ratchet up a little bit. And I'm, so I'm, I'm, given, I'm given some arguments. And have you ever been in a situation where you're like, man, I wish I would have said that after the fact. This was a moment where I didn't need to say that because everything I wanted to say, I was saying. It was like my mind was crystal clear. And it started to ratchet up. My friend's like, I got to get out of here. So he's, he moves off. And I'm like, and the guy's like, no, and we're going to, listen, we, if you don't stop, we're going to call security. Go ahead and call the security. Jesus is too powerful for you. <laughs> Giving it to him, the security guy comes along and he takes my arm. And I said, just one second. And I gave my final salvo and it was like the perfect line. And then he took me away. And I remember seeing my friend off in the distance and I went up to him and I gave him this high five. You know, sometimes you miss your high five like an idiot. You're like, oh, nuts. You know, we did that. This one though was like, and I was like, the spirit was in that high five. And then we went the rest of the day. Proud. That's the way Christians do it, right? A number of years later, I was in seminary, and I was actually studying this passage. And I was sitting in the room in my first Corinthians class, and I started thinking about this whole event. And it occurred to me that in the process of trying to tell this man about the love of Christ, I forgot the love of Christ. All you need is love. Second one, though, uh, what is love? Maybe don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Well, here, here she's going to define it, right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, Hopes all things, endures all things. Now you may kiss your bride. Right? Well, it, where, I mean, where have you heard? Everyone in the room, if you've ever been to a wedding, I don't care if it's Christian or otherwise, has read that. Because it's, it's a poem. It's a beautiful poem about love and how magical it is. We had, my, I think we had it at my wedding. Here's what's really interesting about it. When you read it at your wedding, one of the things you're trying to say is... Um, Look at how beautiful these words are and how uplifting they are and how encouraging they are. And yet, Paul, when he writes it, is actually writing it as what we call a polemic. He's trying to poke the Corinthians in the ribs with this passage. It's got an edge to it. And the reason it has an edge to it is he's saying, look, love is patient and you're not. It's kind and you guys aren't. It doesn't envy or boast. That's what you're doing. Just read the whole book. You just boast all the time in your status or your elitism or how rich you are or who you follow. It's not arrogant or rude, but you are. It doesn't insist on its own way, and that's all you do. So in order to read this passage right, you've got to kind of Put the edge back on it. Gordon Fee is a commentator. He actually said, uh, the way you need to read this passage is you need to put your name in the place of love. You say, Jeff is patient. Jeff is kind. Jeff doesn't envy or boast. Jeff's not arrogant or rude. Jeff doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. 
He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jeff bears all things, he believes all things, he hopes all things, and he endures all things. And at the end, you're supposed to say, is that true? Man, when you start thinking about some of the words, it's actually <laughs> patient. This is a word that means, uh, that, that actually, a better translation is long-suffering. We don't use that word anymore, which is a really bad thing, because isn't it way more descriptive than patient? I'm losing my patience. No, I'm losing my long-suffering, because that's what I've been feeling while you've been at, in Target for the last three hours, honey, and I'm just sitting out here. I've been long-suffering out here, waiting for you to come out. Love is long-suffering. That's the way I would describe your love for your, your, your infant, your toddler. Long-suffering. So would you. Because when my kids were little, man, they didn't care a twit about me. Right? They'd walk through the house and they'd break things and then they'd look at you and then you'd put it back up and they'd break it again and cry all night long. Hog my wife. Always wanting her all the time. Do you try to hug my wife right in the middle? They're kind of jerks, babies. <laughs> so why do you put up with them? You wouldn't, you wouldn't put up with anybody else like this. Why do you do it? Well, love. It's long-suffering. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's patient and kind. It, it doesn't envy or boast. It doesn't insist on its own way. Uh, so when I was dating my wife, I remember always, I lived in the Pacific Northwest where it rains like 300 days of the year. And so I always remember running through the rain and getting the car. And I'd say to her, stay here. I will go get the car and I will come and pick you up. Right? I never, ever said to her, you know, I'm going to stay here. Why don't you go get it? <laughs> Why not? Well, I love her. So love doesn't say, hey, go get the car. It doesn't insist on its own. I'm going to stay in this safe place while you go out there into the threatening wind. I, I'm, I'm going to... Make sure I have the best part of all this stuff, and then you can have the leftovers because why? I'm really important, right? I'm really, really important. If you knew how important I was, you'd understand why I need this and you don't. It's not irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices the truth. It, it, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. The, the, the language here literally is it doesn't consider the evil. Like it doesn't remember the evil done. It overlooks it. I think I've told you before, one of the greatest preacher stories I've ever heard, uh, and I think I've shared it before, is about this marriage counselor who... This couple is fighting, and he said, listen, when you guys go home today, I want you to take a box, and I want you, every time you have an issue with your spouse, you need to put it in the box. So they go home, they do this, put it in the box, put it in the box, put it in the box. And they come and they bring their box into the next meeting, and 
the wife goes first, and she said, she's like, I was angry when you, you left your underwear in the bathroom floor. I, I was mad when you didn't drive me through, didn't go get the car in the rain. I was you know, doing all this thing. She had a whole list, right? Okay, it's your turn, husband. Husband takes it. He opens his box, and he says, my, my first card says, I love you. 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 Right. Right, it doesn't keep a record of, of wrongs. It doesn't bring everything back up. When something goes, oh, this person's just like that. Look at the pattern of their life and all the ways that they've wronged me in the past. No, no. Rejoices with the truth. Doesn't consider the evil. Doesn't remember it. So how'd you do? Patient, kind, doesn't envy, boast, not arrogant, rude, doesn't insist on its own way, not irritable, resentful, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If I asked your best friends to describe you, would they use those words? You can see why nobody reads the context when they go to the weddings, right? Might stop the wedding before it starts. Do you know the response that Christians have to those questions, though, just so, just so we know? They're, they're in, in, when we're Christians, we get poked with these, with these truths. We read passages like this and we think to ourselves, well, I'm not like that. In so many ways, I'm not like that. Well, I, you have two options now. Either I'm going I'm to work myself back up to it because that's the way I'm going to get approval from God which is absolutely not Christian. The other option is to say, thanks be to God that Jesus was all of them. Thanks be to God that my righteousness is not found in my own ability to do this, but in his ability to love. And then he takes his ability to love, he places it on me. I'm found in Christ, clothed in him, so that when God looks at me, he sees the perfect love of Jesus. And now I'm in a position to say, I, I want to follow you wherever it is that you want to take me. And Jesus' response to that is, I want to take you on a path of love. I want to form this in you. So if you look at this and you say, I'm, that's not formed in me yet, just know Jesus is working. And that the right response is to thank him for the gospel and then ultimately say, I want it, Lord. I want it. What is love? Uh, last one, love will go on. Near, far, wherever you are. But when you watch this movie, Titanic, some of you, uh, just count how many times he yells, his, yells, Rose, Rose, Rose. Oh, it's irritating. Okay? Love never ends. Love never ends, but, but, prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. So remember the question I asked you at the very beginning of all this thing is, hey, what do we do with the gift of tongues? Is it something that's still happening right now? 
Or, or has it ceased at one point? Or when will it cease? Whoa, he's all of a sudden talking about it, yes? He's saying, look, prophecies are going to cease. Tongues are going to cease. Knowledge is going to cease. And you and I are like, ooh, when? For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What's his answer? When the perfect comes. Now look, there are two big options here. The Bible interpreters point to to say, okay, this is what the perfect is. The first option is, okay, the perfect is actually a word that means maturity, completeness. And so what it's being saying is that in the early church, it's not complete yet. It's not mature yet, but there's a point at which it becomes mature, and that's when they have the scriptures. And so this passage is saying the perfect is the Bible. And when it comes, the partial will be done away with. So we won't need tongues and prophecy and knowledge, okay? The other option is to take the perfect as being a reference to the return of Jesus, to say the perfect is actually when Jesus comes and he ends all this stuff. So when prophecy and tongues and knowledge, all of those will cease when Jesus comes back and not before. If you believe that it stopped with the Bible, then what do you say about the gift of tongues today? You say, well, it's, it's it, whatever it is, people are feeling something or whatever. I don't know if it's being duped or whatever, but it's not a legit gift now because the perfect has come. If you, though, go the other way and you say, well, actually, the perfect is a reference to Christ, then this passage is affirming that these gifts will continue until the return of Christ. Has Christ returned yet? Oh, so you'd expect them to be operative today. So this is a big word. So here's what we're going to do. A little Bible study, okay? I'm going to read the rest of this passage, and you can decide which it is. Ready? When I was, as he gives an illustration, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish things. So there was a time where I was immature, and now a time in his illustration that you, do, you become mature. My, my wife used to, actually, she used to, um, when she's a little girl, she giggles about this. She says, I used to um, say, say sorry to all the socks in my sock box that I wasn't going to wear that day because I felt bad for them, right? <laughs> now, this is something she did when she was really little, and then last year she gave it up. And, and, but no, but you see, this is, when you look back to the things you thought when you were a kid, you're like, man, I was really dumb. Yeah, this is what happens. There's a point at which you don't know, and then there's a point at which you do know. Now, this could fit either of them. What about the next illustration? For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when the perfect comes, face to face, you ever looked in the bottom of a uh, pot? It's got that little bronze bottom, and you look at it, and you look at your, look at your, 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 uh, mirrored face, it's not that clear. This is what he's referring to, that kind of thing. Those were the mirrors they had in that day. You can't, it's like you can't make out all of, 
all of the contours of the face. Now, he says, we see a mirror dimly. But then when the perfect comes, we see face to face. Is that a reference to the Bible or is that a reference to the return of Christ? Hold. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So, Would you describe your experience right now as a Christian being fully known? Yes. Uh, Do you you think you know fully? Because you have the Bible, do you know fully? Or are there still things that you think, oh, I, I actually don't know fully. I still feel like in this present age, I'm looking through a glass dimly. I still feel like we're, we're children and there's going to be a point at which we actually are mature and we understand things. Is that the Bible or the return of Christ? You know the answer. It's the return of Christ. Which means we should expect gifts to remain throughout this present age. They will eventually cease. Look, I am in no way talking about how these should operate in the church. I'm in no way talking about, you know, whether or not their gift of tongues is used in an appropriate way in lots of churches, whether or not it should be used in the gathered assembly. That's all coming next week. So you could come back and find all that out. But this passage sir, sure says that this, these, these should continue. The people who say I've got the gift of tongues are not, not being duped. They actually, am, you should expect it. But this isn't the point of this passage, is it? Look, we see in a mirror dimly. We know in part. Consequently, so now, faith, hope, and love remain. These three. But the greatest of these is love. What's the more excellent way? It's the way of love. It's the way of gifts. It's not the way of... You know what's crazy about this? What you've got is a bunch of people who've argued about the, about the gifts, right? And they come to blows about them over this whole thing. And the passage that talks about whether they continue or they cease is about love. <laughs> they continue! No, they don't! But what about love? So what is the mark of a real Holy Spirit person? It's not ecstatic speech. It's not having insight. It's not great preaching or musical ability. It's not miraculous powers. It's not even dying as a martyr. The mark of a real Holy Spirit-filled, controlled person is love. Or to put it another way, love is never going to give you up, never going to let you down, (laughs) never going to run around and desert you. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for this passage of Scripture and the reminder of what's important. Man, we get into so many fights in the church, Lord, about so many different things. And yeah, they're important, Father. It's important to try to figure these things out, to understand how it is that you 
want us to function in your church and with each other, but ultimately, Lord, I pray that your church all over the place, whether it's a charismatic, non-charismatic, whatever, I pray, Father, that your church all over the place would be marked by love more than anything else would be marked by love and the love that we have for each other. May that definition of love actually be something that we find in our hearts as Jesus continues to form himself in us. So thank you, thankful, of course, for his love that is the ultimate example to us and is the thing that actually is our own as we're found in him. So we praise you, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.